My name is Dr. Edwin Cruz, and you're listening to the Bridge Builders Podcast. Medicine is evolving at high speed, and so is our healthcare system. Lifestyle medicine is one of the many interesting developments currently occurring. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Sam Manger, GP, GP educator, and president of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Sam is also host of the popular podcast, The GP Show. Welcome to the Bridge Builders podcast, Sam. Very nice to be here. Thank you very much, Evan. We're going to talk about lifestyle medicine today, and I'm interested to hear from you. Is the way doctors have been practicing so far enough? Uh, well, I think the answer's got to be no, um, but it, it's got to be clear from the beginning that I, it's not meant as a criticism, but rather we should frame the conversation like, what's the next stage of evolution in healthcare? I think that's kind of a nicer way to put it, because... You know, I love medical history, and it's a story of constant adaptation, constant growth uh, to the challenges that we face as, 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 a, as, a, as a species, as a human species. And so if you just look at medical history, 100 years ago, 25% of children died by the age of four, largely from infectious illnesses. And medicine responded beautifully with sanitation, hygiene, antibiotics, vaccinations, etc. And so now it's really uncommon for children to pass away. And it's the same, we've done the same with antenatal care, we've done amazingly there, uh, maternal mortality, trauma, intensive care, and so on. But now we have a different challenge, and this is where we're kind of not enough, I think. And there's there's two big challenges that are relevant to our conversation tonight. The first one is chronic disease. 85% of disease burden is now chronic disease, 50% of Australians have one, 25% have two or more, Uh, 50% of Australians over the age of 65, on five or more medications. Diabetes is going to triple. Alzheimer's is going to triple. Obesity is going to be 80% of the population by 2025. Yet we know that the vast majority of these are preventable with good lifestyle change. And there was a great paper uh, in JAMA, and it showed the four lifestyle choices. They were uh, you know, healthy diet, exercise, smoking cessation, and another one, which was less, yeah, that's right, less BMI than 30 that you would reduce the risk of diabetes by 93%, heart disease by about 80%, cancer by about a third, and dementia by about 30 to 50%. We know that a lot of these problems that we're getting now are preventable when you actually start doing the lifestyle properly. And that sort of relates to the second challenge that we're facing today, which is costs. Like all this, all this chronic disease costs an enormous amount of money. Um, I was just giving a presentation the other day on this, which is why it's all pretty fresh in my in my mind. But Health expenditure used to be about 6% of GDP in the 1980s, and that was about $10 billion, so not much. Now it's over 10%, I think it's almost 11% of GDP, and it's about $170 billion a year. So it's doubled in ratio to GDP, but it's gone up 17-fold, but luckily the economy's grown as well. The question is what happens when the economy stops growing, we're going to be in strife. But regardless, it's, it's doubled. And... Uh, someone who shall remain nameless, fairly high up, told me the other day that we're that the, the health system in Australia is four hundred billion dollars in public debt. So, so the health system is kind of eroding beneath our feet, which obviously concerns us all. And and this is at least partly due to this enormous burden of chronic diseases, and also the medications required to control that chronic disease, and the hospital admissions, and the the, the intensive cares, and all that sort of stuff. You know, medications now account for about 19% or maybe it's about 17% of health expenditure. It's about $18 billion a year. GP, to put that in comparison, only costs the healthcare system 9%. So it's half the amount we spend on medications we spend on GPs. 
right? And public health only about 2%. I think it's either less or just above 2%. And there was a great article in the MJA. It was a few years old now, but um, saying that by, and I, this is from memory, so it was one less medication on average if all Australians took one less medication in a year, then you'd save about, it was either four or $500 million a year. Conventional medicine served us really well, um, but we desperately need change for a variety of reasons, for patient and for us. And we have this healthcare system, Medicare, which is, you know, it's great. Like I'm, it's one of the best healthcare systems in the world, but it's designed for quick medicine. It was always evolved for infectious illnesses, you know, these 15-minute consults in and out. That does not, it's not how we need to to manage chronic disease. We need much more intimate care. And so coming back to your question, uh, no, it's not enough. <laughs> and the question is, of course, is lifestyle medicine the answer? Please tell me about this new branch of medicine. Uh, well, lifestyle medicine is, is a term. Um, it it's basically incorporates evidence-based multidisciplinary, meaning it's, it's, it's doctors, allied health, nurses, etc., um, health coaches and whatnot that advocates the use of lifestyle interventions. And so by that, I mean nutrition, movement, sleep management, stress reduction, happiness, um, healthy social relationships and relationships with nature, reduced substance abuse. And then that's coupled with health coaching and behavior change techniques, communication techniques, and enhancing that because people say, so, well, so people actually do it because if you have give people nutrition advice, but you don't know how to uh, learn some skills on behavior change and communication, then it's kind of all for naught. There's no point. You need both. And then really the third arm is technological innovations like apps and online platforms and that can help enhance the delivery of this because it's a common way these days of people either learning about or applying their life, you know, nutrition, movement, sleep and stress. So there was a paper, it was Canadian, so it's not not Australian, but they have a reasonably similar GP training system to us. But 82% of GPs report that their formal nutrition training was inadequate and um, very little in specialist training and GP training in med schools is dedicated to these areas. It's it's extremely important that if we're going to meet those challenges I mentioned before, uh, that we actually start having this conversation, we start increasing the training in these areas. And um, it, it's a shame to me that, that that has been the case, but like that is changing. And I know that the society I pro bono for is, um, is working on that. So let's talk about what people think. Some are under the impression that lifestyle medicine is a form of alternative medicine. What's the evidence? Yeah, sure. Look, that that's a good question because that's probably one of the most common questions I get or concerns when they hear the term lifestyle medicine. And I can understand it, that's fair enough. But the truth is the good lifestyle medicine, when you do the nutrition, the movement, the sleep, which I think is just it's common sense in a way, but when you actually learn the, the detail of the evidence behind it, which I'll go through in a second, but and you learn the skills to help people apply it, then they actually don't need anywhere near as many supplements or herbs or medications or other things like that. So it's 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 definitely not um, there, there is no advocacy of of supplements or other alternative medicines. And and not that, to say, to be clear though, I'm not necessarily against that, but it's just that that's not what it is. And um, when you look at every guideline, cholesterol guidelines, blood pressure guidelines, um, psychiatric guidelines, you'll see in those flowcharts first line lifestyle interventions. All right, so it's this is as mainstream, as foundation as you can get. It's just what does that mean? What is the evidence? Which which path should we be taking when it comes to specific lifestyle interventions? And and no one's really developed a therapeutic guideline on that front, which is again what the society I pro bono for is is building now, a sort of lifestyle medicine therapeutic guidelines. So 
Um, so that sort of answers your question. As for the evidence question, look, all evidence in science, as you well know, comes down to basic tenets. That's that's basic science and animal studies. There's observational studies, there's clinical trials like RCTs, and then there's clinical experience, which I think we probably don't actually listen to enough. Um, but there's extensive evidence for lifestyle interventions. I mean, has been for years, but it's just getting stronger. I mean, there's exponential growth in studies looking at lifestyle interventions. Now, we know that there's there's randomized control trials in, in coronary artery disease showing reversal. We've had those for 20 years. Um, diabetes reversal, we know 80% of diabetes is reversible if you diagnose it, you know, if you start treatment within six years and they lose 15 kilos. Major depression, this great paper from the BMC professor Felice Jacker, 2017, showed that 32%, this is a randomized control trial, 32% of moderate to severe depression is reversible with nutrition alone. Schizophrenia, we know that 80% of people have sleep disturbance and insomnia massively increases the presence of positive, positive symptoms like you know, delusions. There was a great paper of cognitive impairment uh, called the FINGER trial, which I've mentioned in some of my other podcasts, 2015 in the Lancet, two-year trial. Good, I think it was like oh, I don't know, 1,500 or 2,000 people in that trial showing 150% improvement in processing speed and 80% improvement in executive functioning with lifestyle measures in people with cognitive impairment. Same with stroke, same with health coaching. There's hundreds of randomized control trials now showing health coaching improves outcomes in diabetes, metabolic disorders, cancers, um, general well-being, quality of life scores, those sorts of things. So it's a pretty rigorous evidence base, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg. I think you're spot on when you say that non-pharmacological interventions are part of every specialty in medicine. Mm. So do you see lifestyle medicine as a separate discipline, mm. or should it be integrated in other disciplines? Yeah, look, it, ideally it should be integrated, but that's going to take time. And so it absolutely should be integrated into the medical curriculum, allied health, uh, nursing, you know, the, the relevant parts, obviously. And then, you know, GP training and specialist training, like without doubt, it should be integrated in there. But you're always going to, you, like, in, for example, GP training is only three years and they've got a lot to learn in that three years. So they've got to learn lifestyle stuff. But they don't really learn much, but hopefully we're going to change that soon. Um, but they, you know, they've got to learn all the medications. They've got to learn procedures. They've got to learn how what, what GP actually means. And they've got to learn about Medicare and all the practice software. It's an enormous amount to learn in three years. So you're, you're only ever going to get like a brief overview in medical school um, and it's going to take years to get into the core curriculum in med schools because that's like breaking into a bank. And um, same with GP training and same with specialist colleges because they're generally you know pretty conservative, which is fair enough. That's for a good reason. It's going to take time. Um, so with that brief overview they learn, hopefully that gives them the basics um, to just like when you're in med school, you don't you don't finish med school as a fully fledged surgeon. You 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 leave med school with the ability to suture. <laughs> so it's a similar. I think what's going to happen is when we're going to integrate it into the curriculum, they'll have some basics and some really important basics, um, and then they can go off and do more training if that's an area of interest. Just like GPs have an interest in skin or um, you know substance abuse or whatever, you're going to have GPs who are more interested in this sort of stuff and probably be. Um, more knowledgeable on where it fits and how to apply it. So I think it's going to, going to be both. Um, you can do certification and fellowships through the Australian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. That's available now, but you don't have to. And um, it's uh, and we are now trying to get this into curriculums. But I predict that's going to be it's going to be years before before that happens. So what do you then say to health professionals who argue? 
well, hang on, we're already doing quite a lot of lifestyle medicine. Well, I'd say that um, good. That's great. I think you're right. I think uh, a lot of GPs have an interest in this area. That's probably why they became GPs um, and obviously some specialties too, too. And um, you can always enhance. So yeah, we learn like a tiny bit of motivational interviewing in uh, med school and GP training, but it literally is tiny. I mean, to be a really proficient health coach, to be really proficient communicator um, and behavior change therapist, it takes many years. Just like to be a dietitian, you know, the nutrition doesn't all be summarized by eat more vegetables, which is kind of what you learn in med school. You know, it takes four years to be a dietitian. Most of them have done PhDs or something like that, or a master's as well. So one or two or three extra years on top of that. It's a bit more complicated than eat more veg. You know, there's such nuance. Um, you know, for some people, it's this, and for some people, it's that. And for people with IBS, it's this. And people with Crohn's disease, this diet is better. And, and it, it takes a long time. So I think it's, it's, actually quite a complicated area that takes many years to develop. And um, I commend those who, who are practicing it. But I think like all things, like I'm all right at skin procedures, but I'm not that good. <laughs> I can't do flaps and I can't do graphs. There's so much more to it than that, just like there is to skin procedures. So I sort of see it as analogous that it's an area that you could learn so much more on. So that's GPs. And I think GPs are probably doing it more than most people, but specialists I have utmost respect for them. But how many times have you sent a person to a specialist? They'll take a really detailed history, which is great. They'll give you a diagnosis, which is fantastic. And they'll usually recommend medication. It's not part of the system, that's for sure. Yeah, you mentioned the healthcare system. And earlier on, you said that the current system is designed for quick, acute medicine. And I have to agree with you there. So how can health professionals implement more lifestyle medicine in their day-to-day -day practice? Because mm. we're all so uh, busy and there is so little mm. time. Well, I think there's two things to say there. First of all, why does it have to be doctors that are delivering it? That's the first question. And I don't think it does. I think it'd be much more useful if we used nurses more effectively and or health coaches within general practice. Um, and... And just like we use dietitians and physios, we would probably need to start incorporating other other people. And the second thing is that there's a, you know, let's take motivational interviewing, for example. So there's a common misconception that it's going to be more time consuming to health coach and motivational interviewing someone in a consult. And actually, meta-analyses have shown that you either save time or you save time. And so it's not there's this idea that lifestyle history taking, um, that lifestyle management is time consuming. Um, but I have not found that to be the case. And the evidence doesn't say that's the case. It's actually, it actually, once you do it, you become very proficient at it. Um, and it doesn't take that long at all. And often saves time in the long run. Because if you've got a person with diabetes and you reverse their diabetes, they don't have to come in as much anymore. Um, and you're saving the healthcare system a lot of money in medications and complications and consequences and allied health referrals and all this sort of stuff. So there's sort of like a short term and a long term consideration here. But I think either way, it's because just from my own personal practice and from the evidence, it's pretty clear that it can fit in. Now, I agree, though, that our health system is not designed for that at the moment. We're not remunerated properly for it. I don't think GPs are remunerated enough for, for what we do. And that's why we have to pressure, you know, we're so pressured to fit so many people in. And I really think at very least we need to move to sort of three 20-minute appointments an hour and be quite open to um, having, you know, longer appointments initially. And there was a really interesting, um, I did a podcast with uh, Dr. Robin Youngson about empathy and compassion. And 
he, he gave an interesting example um, that often spending that initial first appointment with a person, investing in that person with compassion, empathy, and getting to know their story um, may take longer the first appointment, but every subsequent appointment, because you've invested in that person, your relationship is so strong with them, it's so much quicker every subsequent appointment. So there's the con- there's the theory and then there's the reality. What's the risk of not including these integrated approaches, including lifestyle modification and coaching? Well, I mean, I want to sort of be clear when integrative approaches isn't not integrated medicine. So, so what I'm not talking about integrated medicine. And, and again, not that I have a problem with it, not, but that's, that's not what lifestyle medicine is. Um, I suppose the risks of it, and I think there are really threefold. If we look at it from obviously a patient point of view, which is the priority, I mentioned this before, um, you know, patients, a lot these these days don't want medications in the first place. Um, now, of course, sometimes they need medications and it would do them, serve them well to be on them. Um, but to give them options like people with diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of lifestyle interventions that are going to possibly reverse their conditions, then that really should be on the table and they would really, really, and they do really, really appreciate it. We know they're going to need less medications and medications produce side effects and they're costly. So it's a, it's a good thing for our patients to be using it, or at least to have it as a tool. Now, what I'm not saying is it's one or the other. It's never a dichotomy and it never has been, it never will be. It's a foundation to good care. And then when that doesn't work, because of course, lifestyle medicine can't fix everything, you need medication, of course you do. And then you need surgery and of course you do, but it's just another tool in the toolbox. When I was a a high school student, um, I did my, what was it? What is it called back in high school? The job experience, is that what it is? Job experience. And uh, with an orthopedic surgeon. And and um, he had a great line, which I've remembered this whole time, which is, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. What lifestyle medicine is another tool. You know, we've got a hammer, we've got a spanner, we've got a screwdriver, you know what I mean? So now we can do more jobs with this. And that's that's what I'm advocating. Looking beyond patients, there's obviously the impacts of the healthcare system, which I mentioned before, that we, we, seriously, we seriously need to have some pretty big change in the healthcare system. And I do believe lifestyle is is not the cause is not the only answer. That would be ridiculous to suggest it was, but it's going to be part of the solution. As we'll be incorporating more cost-effective means of delivery, which is where you mentioned before, and that could be health coaches and online platforms, coaching platforms, all kinds of things now are possible. Um, and even soon, I'm sure artificial intelligence and things like that. And then finally, we're endangering ourselves as clinicians because. The Beyond Blue report showed, I think it's like two or three years ago, that 25% of doctors have considered suicide in the last 12 months, 25%. It's it's enormous, the rates of burnout. And that's because doctors are, are pushed. And um, often there's lots of reasons for that. One of them is we don't have a huge job satisfaction because we never really, I, I think most people got into medicine to connect with people, to to have that experience and to help people. But if all you feel like you're doing is seeing a person every 10 minutes and giving them a script, you're never gonna feel that deep sense of satisfaction at the end of the day. But when you feel, when a person comes into you and you've reversed their diabetes and you've stopped all their medications and they say, thank you so much. And you know that person now is doing the same thing for their, their children and their wife and that effect is sort of rippling out. That's a deep satisfaction you have in your job now. So it's so good for us. And also, when you get good at communicating and health coaching, we know, again, evidence is clear, the medical legal risks go down. 
right? Um, and that's because your relationship with your patients is generally quite strong, um, but there's other reasons as well. So it, we're endangering kind of the whole thing if we don't start to look, start to incorporate this. Um, again, I'd say not as the only solution, but as just another tool. Do you have tips for health professionals who want to implement more lifestyle medicine in the work they do? Find some good resources. Uh, there's some great textbooks out there. There's Gary Egger's Lifestyle Medicine, which is kind of like the Murtagh of lifestyle medicine for Australia. There's James Rippey, who's a cardiologist in America. He's got the US version. There's Dr. Mechanic, who's a European lifestyle medicine doctor. So they've written the sort of three seminal textbooks, and then there's various ones around the place. And they're kind of a reasonable place to start. There's obviously Australian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. They do training and they have conferences and workshops and certification fellowship and that sort of stuff. And then, um, you know, if any of the GPs listening, just about to send it in, but the RACGP special interest groups, uh, a lifestyle medicine one. So it's going to be a good way to network and we'll have a Facebook group and people can share, hopefully a very peaceful, respectful Facebook group <laughs> um, where people can uh, just share studies and have an open scientific dialogue about what the evidence shows and how to apply it. So, so there's there's those sorts of resources, uh, and then there's the specific things. And so, I suppose you know one of the techniques as a registrar that we recommend because obviously I'm a medical educator. So, is when you're going through your day, have a little piece of paper there and write down the things that you need to go and read up when you get home. Now, I think that when you finish general practice training, we get a little bit complacent. You know, we, we, we know it. We know a lot. We studied really hard. We know a lot about all these conditions. We know all the medications. We know the, probably the side effects. But I would encourage people to start writing those conditions and maybe going and do some reading on the actual lifestyle intervention required because they'd be pretty amazed at how much can be done. Like I said, diabetes or, or heart disease or strokes or dementia and name many other conditions, reflux and Crohn's disease and multiple sclerosis, that you go and read these things and go, holy, you know, holy moly, I didn't realize how much I can reverse with these lifestyle interventions. And so just self-directed learning, I suppose. And then when it comes to health coaching, that that's a big that's a big topic. But there's there's certain principles that always apply. Like if you take a very detailed history, that's which is which is my advice, you know. So the most common thing I see when I'm doing ECT visits or um, training GPs, like either fully fledged GPs or or junior GPs. Um, I say, well, what nutrition history do you take? And the most common thing I see is, how's your diet? Yeah, it's pretty good, doc. Okay, cool. Well, it's not that then. Um, and how are you smoking? And that's it. That's the extent of the dietary history. And at most, it might be, do you eat many vegetables? No, yes. But just on that, I would encourage people to ask very specifically, be very curious, play the detective, which is what we got in the med school for. What's your breakfast? What's your morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner, after dinner, before bed, overnight, snacks? dining out drinks takes three minutes to ask all that sort of stuff and get the detail document it in detail because it is amazing what you find out by doing that you know i i can't tell you all the variants of, of interesting dietary histories i've got there and the person started by telling me no i have a pretty good diet doc and that's what they started with and they might be having two to three liters of juice a day they might think that toast and jam is healthy they you know and, or they may be an overnight snacker. And, you know, 30% of people who are obese have an eating disorder, like a sort of a binging or, or something like that. So you can't assume people, what people say is different from the truth often. So, so when you start to ask those sorts of detailed questions, the answers become pretty apparent um, as to what they need to change. Maybe all they needed to do was cut out the juice and put on some blue light filters at night. But you can't manage someone unless you know what the diagnosis is. Does that make sense? Thanks, Sam. 
that was so interesting and I've learned a lot today. It's a fascinating area of healthcare with so many attractive aspects, such as providing alternatives, taking pills where appropriate, uh, a, a multidisciplinary and shared care approach, the likely lower costs, which seemed to me a win-win-win situation for patients, the healthcare system, and um, health professionals, of course. So is there anything else, Sam, today that you would like to share with our listeners? Oh, look, I, you you got to stop me, mate, <laughs> because I could just keep on going about this. What, what there's certain things we're used to being in meds, in medicine, and that's and, and it's change, it's changing for sure. So I'm not I'm not saying that this is anything particularly new, but there's an old school way of paternalistic medicine, which is what the doctor says goes. And I'm going to give you the one page handout on healthy eating, and you're going to go and do it. That fails. We know it fails. We know people don't follow that advice. People are only going to follow advice when it's personalized to them, which is why I say take a very detailed history because you have, that's how you personalize things. And when you know the values and the whys of that person. So when you know why they're doing what they're doing, like maybe they're eating crap, but maybe it's because they're really stressed and they have no self-confidence and eating sugary food is the only pleasure they get in their life. Or maybe they've got chronic pain and life is so crap that you know eating some biscuits is the only relief they get from that. You know, so so you've got to know the why of that person, and and that is that takes us away from this paternalistic model into a much more shared shared care approach. You know, so you tell me about you, you tell me about your story, and you don't prescribe behavior change to them. You don't prescribe nutrition to them. You say, well, what do you think needs to change? How do you think we can change? And what would make you happier in this process? So it's a very different approach. And again, I could talk about health coaching for hours because it's a beautiful thing, but it's much more about self-determination, self-management. And that's why I say this is not a new thing because I know I know that self-management is a concept um, that, that especially the RACGP encourage. Um, but I'm not sure we're really taught what that means and how we're to do it. So this is where this is where that sort of comes to the fray. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Sam. Thank you. Thanks, Edwin. Likewise. Cheers, mate. For more information about bridge builders, our blog, or this podcast, please visit bridgebuilders.vision.